Good morning for those of you who are visiting. My name is Matt. We're very glad to have you here with us. As you can tell, this is a bit of an emotional day for some of us. Um, But we're about two weeks out from Easter. And as we start looking forward to the beautiful world, history-changing event that that was, um, even the passage John 17 and today's uh, passage today will be in Ephesians 2 if you want to start turning in your Bibles to get there. This passage so beautifully ties in with the entire Easter message, the glory of our need for a Savior and how that's fulfilled through the death and the cross. So please turn with me to Ephesians 2. I'll give you a quick minute to get there. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Our great God, I pray right now that you will reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Pray for me, Lord God, that I will gently and humbly share what you have prepared for us today. Pray that you will soften the hearts of all those who are hearing. Lord God, be with our church, be with these people. Help us to put our eyes and our faith firmly on you, Lord God, and lean not on our own understanding. We thank you that you are God from the beginning of time, from the creation, from the flood, to the children of Israel wandering through the desert. You are God. Be with us now. In your gracious name we pray. Amen. So just to recap, this is not the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians. I always like to look back and see how we got to what we're talking about. Um, Very important to look at things in context. We all know verses can be taken out of context. So when we're looking at how we got to this point, how the Apostle Paul brings us here, he starts off in the first chapter, and this is fond, fond greetings. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I wonder if the church of Galatia was jealous. What did they get? Oh, foolish Galatians, how quickly you forgot what I just taught you. Paul is writing encouragement and instruction to Ephesians. In him we have obtained an inheritance, And then starting in verse 15 of the first chapter, we see the the section immediately preceding our text today. 
He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Brothers and sisters, this is joy. This is hope. This is optimism. He's not writing to, incur- to discourage them or beat them down, but to encourage them to lift them up. Today my hope is that we can see the beauty of this text, that we have a great need for a Savior. We have no hope to save ourselves, but God has saved us unto himself so that we can live according to his purposes. So it's in that context we get to the first verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in light of this great hope, this promise, this optimism, he reminds them of who they once were. There is no light without darkness. We cannot see our need of a Savior without first seeing our sin. So you who are dead in trespasses, you who once followed the course of this world, followed the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. Who's he speaking to? Who followed this course of this world? All of us. All of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone with a pulse has committed a sin. Every one of us is a sinner. We have all fallen short of the standard of perfection that God requires of us. Some of us, We know this fact well. We're under no false pretenses. For some, it may be news. It may be news to you. You might think you're a good person. Heck, you likely are, especially if you're sitting here on church on a Sunday morning. You're probably a good person. Probably pay your taxes, walk old ladies across the street, don't hold up liquor stores. Being good is not a relative standard. It's it's very tempting to measure our goodness against the worst degenerates in society and say, see, we're not as bad as them. In Scripture, we see a group that's called out repeatedly for doing this exact thing. The Pharisees, right? Pharisees were the most educated, most respected, most obedient to the letter of the law. They did everything right. You would not catch them riding dirty. The Pharisees were good people on the outside. People like you and I, the average Joes walking around in ancient Hebrew society, would look up to them like, wow, those are the good people. Probably more realistically, we'd probably scurry and hide our eyes and try to avoid their gaze so they don't cast their scorn and judgment on us. More reality. So it's kind of like, have you ever heard of the Chinese social credit score system? Like, it's been around a few years. Basically, the government of China is saying, here's how we'll measure whether you're good or bad. Do you pay your taxes? Do you... Go to work on time, right? Do you not post negative things on the internet? And that'll bump your social credit score up, right? And if you do things that the government doesn't like, uh, bad driving, smoking in non-smoking areas, buying too many video games, they'll evaluate the way you spend your money. They will now knock down your social credit score. The Pharisees very likely ran this social credit score 
of the ancient Jewish world. They held all the cards. Your approval was in the hand of these Pharisees. They had the power to make or break you. And quite honestly, very oftenly, they tried to break people. Here's an example from Matthew 12. There was a man with a withered hand, okay? So we read that Jesus entered the synagogue, Matthew 12, verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him? Not that they cared, they wanted to accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? Which one of you, if you got a flat tire driving home today, wouldn't get out and change that tire? He continues on, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man who had this withered hand stretches it out and is made whole, healed right there on the spot by the very words of Jesus Christ. I bet most people watching that said, oh my word, that is the Son of God. But how did the Pharisees react? Verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So the Pharisees, they see that this man, who claims to be God, or has the power to work miracles, healed a man on the spot. And when Jesus heals him, they are bitter. They go out to conspire against the Son of Man to see how they can destroy him. But remember, these Pharisees were the good people. They were the good people. This is what it means to be dead in our trespasses, to be so dead in our sin that like the Pharisees who see the very workings of the miracles of the Son of God, reject it, despise it, want nothing to do with it. When presented with true good, the only true good, they reject it. That is being dead in sin. This is how dead we all are outside of Christ. So we see that those who are dead in sin, who followed even the evil one, continuing on to verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were dead in our desire for the things of God. That's the truth of John 17. That's the truth of Ephesians chapter 1. And here, continuing on to Ephesians chapter 2. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. What are these desires of the body? I think we've even talked about this many times. We could probably make a pretty clear list from Scripture and from personal experience what the desires of the flesh and of the body are. They are not good things, Right? easy to identify sins, things the world would even call bad. Lying, anger, stealing, lust, licentiousness, right? These are the passions of the flesh and the body, simple base-level sins that we can all recognize clearly when someone else commits them, right? But what about these Pharisees? What was, these, what was their passion? Let's turn to Luke 7. Pharisee asked Jesus over for dinner. Dinner at these times is not like dinner nowadays. If I run up to you after church and invite you over for dinner, you're, we'll say, yeah, let's do it. And I'll say, you know, Tuesday your wife will text my wife and say, what can I bring? And uh, my wife will be caught off guard because I didn't tell her I invited you for dinner. And she'll think about all these things and she'll just say, bring a salad because we don't know what we're going to make. 
Dinner was not like that back then. Dinner back then was a production. It was theater, right? Open courtyards, spectators, people coming in to listen to these great Pharisees and Sadducees and theologians discuss the inner workings of the Torah, how they can better judge other people and their ability to follow the law. So we read that they are reclining. They are discussing. And a woman comes in. We read, she is a sinner. That's code for harlot. Okay, We'll use that term with little ears in the room. She is a harlot. And this woman becomes weeping, and she's weeping and sobbing, these great giant tears. She's sobbing all over the feet of Jesus. And as she's drowning his feet in tears, she begins using her hair to dry his feet off. Okay, And then we read that she takes a flask of oil, and she anoints it on his feet. This was not common. This was not a common practice. This didn't happen every other dinner. This was abnormal. A woman so broken, a sinner who even entered in to this dinner with the Pharisees where they were present, knowing their judge and scorn, as she gets down and humbles herself at the feet of Jesus Christ, cries and weeps and pours oil on his feet, the humility, the understanding of the lack of anything inside of her, and what does the Pharisee do? What do you think everyone else watching did? Oh, what is going on? This is crazy. What does the Pharisee do? Well, we read in Scripture, the Pharisee scoffs to himself and he thinks, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman was touching him. She is a sinner. Many of our sins are typical, selfish, obvious sins of the flesh. But many of these sins are sins of the mind, like this Pharisee. Sins of lust and envy and arrogance and pride. Sins that can't be seen from the outside, that are in the heart. These are sins we all struggle with, right? No one more than me. I'm not pointing fingers, I promise you. But make no mistake, those who are dead in sin, who are slaves to sin, not just obvious sins, sometimes the hidden sins. If you search the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus saved his harshest rebuke for the Pharisees not the lowly harlots. So this is how we used to live, right? In big old wicked, obvious sin, and sometimes in small, minor, hidden sins that only God can know. And we come to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. God is rich in mercy. Does it say God being rich in mercy because you have chosen him? Or God being rich in mercy because you have realized you are bad and want to be better? It doesn't even say God being rich in mercy because you turned from your sin. It says God because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Brother and sister, we are not good enough. I am not good enough. I am a sinner. We are all somewhere on the scale between Pharisee and harlot. Sinning in flesh and body or in mind. But there is hope. Hear me now. I am a sinner. I am a sinner, but I am made alive in Christ. This is the joy we have. Psalms 103 tells us, The Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God knows who we are. Like Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned and they tried to hide from God. Good luck with that. It's like, it's like a toddler, a chubby little toddler, probably no shirt on, finds a box of chocolates and grabs them and starts shoving your mouth. Right? I'm sure we've all done that or seen that. And then you know, the mom walks in and says, did you eat the chocolates? What's that toddler say? No, mommy. Right? That is us trying to hide our sin from God. We cannot hide our sin from the God who knows all things, who knows the hearts and minds of man, who hears the Pharisees' scoffing thoughts. But this is God's mercy. God is not fooled into thinking he's giving a leg up to, to good people. Far from it. He knows he's saving those who are so dead that they would despise him. Mercy is not given from a place of weakness or even equality. Mercy is given from the strong to the weak. We read, who does Jesus bless? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Our God loves us because of his mercy, not because of our strength. Amen? Continuing on, latter half of verse 5, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Looking specifically here at verse 6, we will be raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. You who are dead in sin, but were raised up by Christ through Christ's death and resurrection, we have a future in store with God in heaven, not in this world. You got I have a mantra. You know what a mantra is, like a personal phrase that you repeat or kind of maybe live by or keeps you focused? One of my mantras is, it's all about the want. Okay, This is one thing I've repeated to myself for a long time. In any kind of tangible material aspect, what do you want more? If you want to get a job as a computer programmer, well, you have to want that more than playing video games every single night until 3 a.m., right? It takes work to get somewhere. It's all about the want. That was one of my personal mantras. Another one I have that I say so often, probably daily, is this world is not my home. This world is not my home. Like you, I'm so often beat down by this world. Sometimes things are good. Sometimes I'm feeling pretty okay. No major turmoils of stress. God gives us these great seasons of rest and joy, but too often the weight of this world is heavy. You with me? Today, my heart is heavy. Even as I stand here preaching, my heart is heavy. The turmoil this week has been heavy. But people live with deep pain and affliction every single day of their lives. There's tragedy every day in this world. From finances to health to family drama. We can't scroll through the news without seeing the utter abject evil of this world. When I look at this world, I shake my head and I just say, this world is not my home. This world is not my home. My home is an eternal life raised up with him 
seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, where I will bask in the riches of grace and kindness too great to measure. We're Baptists. Can I get an amen to that? My home is not here, not with a broken heart, not with sin running rampant, not in a world where kids are taken from their parents and smuggled across the border and sold into slavery. This world is not my home. For a little time, for a little while, we're here. I'd like to say I'm on a a long-term visa. I'm stuck for a little while, but this is not my home. And I ask you, is this your home? Is this your home? Is this the only hope you have? If you're sitting here and you're not sure where your home is, perhaps, perhaps you've even been convinced that you can't be good enough to merit your way into heaven. That you are indeed dead in your sin with no hope for this eternal life. Let me tell you, there is hope of a better home for you. You need not be hell-bound and hopeless. There truly is a hell. We have glimpses of this hell on earth. Sin runs rampant here. Heaven forbid you're able to access the dark, the deepest corners of the dark web. Sin is rampant, but sin is also restrained. By the grace of God, sin is restrained. But here's what we know. In the fullness of time, this world will end. Whether your time here on earth or Christ returns for his people, this ends. Even today, what are the odds that you make it home on the car ride alive? Pretty good. I pray, pretty good, right? But not 100%. We don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. And when your time here runs out, when all you're facing is heaven with to be raised with Christ, seated with him, basking in great kindness, or hell, where the wicked will be tormented eternally, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where will you be? Where will you be? In Luke 18, we read of a blind man. He's begging on the side of the road. Please keep in mind, in ancient Israel, they did not have social services. They did not have a leg-up program for um, disabled, disabled workers. If you did not have a family to take care of you, you had no hope. If you were blind, you sat by the road begging for the generosity and the mercies of others. That's all you could do. So he, this blind man, begging at the side of the road, hears a loud commotion. And he asks someone, what's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And he didn't know. He hears this crowd. He's blind. He's just hearing the loud noises of this procession coming by. He doesn't know where in this procession Jesus is. So at the top of his lungs, he just cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Sorry, that was loud. And Jesus has mercy on him. Not because this beggar had anything to offer him, but because of his grace and mercy. So I ask you again, when your days on earth are up, where will you be? For some of us, we know where that hope is. For some of you, you may not be sure. That answer might be, I don't know. I get that. I get that. That's not... That's understandable. You might be hearing this for the first time. Or maybe you've been sitting in church your entire life, playing on your phone, making shadow puppets on the carpet. I've done that. But if you don't know where you're spending eternity, 
or if you think or hope or you want that to be heaven, or you just want to be sure that it's in heaven, I've got good news. Right here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul dumbs this down for us. How are we to be made alive in Christ? By grace. That simple. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So think about the Pharisees you read about. What do they think saves them? What do those Pharisees put their faith and their trust in? The Pharisees boast in their good works, and the Pharisees are dead in their sin. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. used to have to translate that. Now I could just say IRS agent. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all I get. Good stuff, right? But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. If you trust in yourself that you are righteous, if you treat others with contempt, if you look at yourself and put your faith and your strength in the things that you do that you deem are good, if you're able to point out the speck in everyone else's eyes, Trust me, I'm talking to myself here, right? As much as anyone. If you can see where others are wrong, then you are not the one who goes to your house justified. But if you are the one who knows you are a sinner, who sees how frail you are, who doesn't want to sin, who tries to be good but fails over and over, but, dear brother and sister, if you cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me, Jesus. I tell you, you are justified in the eyes of God. This is the strangest, most earth-shattering truth in the world. Some of you may have never heard it put this way, so pay attention for a second. Put the shadow puppets away. The only thing you can bring to your salvation is your sin. You cannot bring righteousness to God. You have none. You cannot be good enough for God. All you can do is cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So how are you saved? How can you have this assurance of salvation? How do you know where you will spend eternity? Eternity. Be a sinner who cries out to God. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Because your salvation is not your doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift from God. That is why this is so important, brother and sister. The Pharisees relied on their own good works, and they were not justified because of it. God says, I will save you because of my grace and mercy, so that you can't boast about it. You can't brag about it. 
So you won't be that Pharisee bragging about how good you are, looking down at these pathetic losers, oh, how sinful they are, thanking God that you have your life in order. If you are in sin, brother and sister, cry out to God and repent, and he will save you. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the end result of that saving grace. Here's the hope for those of us that struggle with doubt, of fear, struggle with turmoil, who are hurt, whose hearts are heavy. Here's our hope. We are not created for destruction or death. We are the intentional, non-accidental workmanship of Christ Jesus. We're not perfect. We will sin. We do sin. I sin. We will sin often and often egregiously. But we are saved by grace. We are Christ's workmanship. And what were we created for? We were created for the good works of our Lord. This is where works come in, not in your salvation. You don't have to bear that weight, brother and sister. You don't need to question if you're good enough because we already know the answer. You can never be good enough. The only thing you can contribute to your salvation is your sin. But since having cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, that God is faithful and just to save you. You can live a life that honors God and reflects that work in your life. These works that God has created us for. And what are these works? I'm going to start at Proverbs 3. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't even try to be the arbiter of what is good. Trust in the Lord daily, hourly. Look to Him, follow Him and he will show you those good works. You don't have the ability to control your life. Right now, it's tempting even now to list all these good works that Scripture shows us. We know what they are. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, honor your father and mother, to forgive not just seven times, but seven times 70. We know these are good works that we've been called to. Different sermon in a different context, maybe we would dive more into that. But we don't need to do these works for our salvation. These are natural responses in gratitude for our salvation. These good works naturally reflect our changed life. So when I found pickleball, and if you don't know what pickleball is, it's a game slash sport. Someone described to me as it's like tennis, played with a wiffle ball with smash ball paddles that you play like ping pong. It's a pretty good, accurate definition of it. So as one who has always struggled a bit with the chubbies, always desiring to get some sort of exercise, I would spend time um, I'm on the program. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to eat vegetables. I'm going to avoid cookies. Well, if you know me, I didn't eat vegetables, but I avoided cookies, and I would eat lean chicken if I could. But what would I do? I'd go to the gym. I'd lift a little weight. I don't have a heart for that. I'd hit the treadmill for my 18 minutes and burn my 236 calories. And that was misery. That was drudgery. That was obligation. That's not what I was created for. But, but when I found pickleball, you can't keep me from the pickleball court. My knees are shot because of playing pickleball. But when someone gives me a call 
and I'm on the couch icing my knees and say, hey, game at 245 today. I'm in. Sign me up. Now, I happen to burn 800 calories an hour playing pickleball, but that's not why I do it. I don't, my heart was not changed towards exercise. My heart was changed. The joy I got playing pickleball, the byproduct was that. Spiritualize this and however you can make that leap in your brain. But these good works are that extension. I don't, out of obligation, do good works of service to others. Out of a joy of a changed heart. Out of a love for the gospel. For the work of Jesus Christ. That is how I manifest this change in my life. Not perfectly, but ever-present. I was created for these good works. We were created for these good works. And the beautiful thing is God has ordained these good works before we were even born, from the foundations of the earth, that we should walk in them. Let your life be lived in such a way that you don't often fall out of step with the path the Lord has directed for you. My kids are 18 and 19 years old, almost 20 and right now they're currently navigating the stresses that come with growing up and finding your way from kid to adult. Should I go to college? What's my major be? Should I move away? Should I get married? What career field, right? Major, life, life-altering decisions. They could set you up or set you back for years if you make a mistake, right? These are huge decisions that we put a lot of weight on ourselves to make. It's not easy to know what is right in every situation. Of course it's not. Do we do things we regret? Absolutely. We'll make mistakes. We'll handle situations in ways we wish we could take back. We make decisions that have consequences that we have to bear. But what I tell my kids, life is, life is simple. Put one foot in front of the other and follow God. It's not easy. I'm not saying that's easy. But it's simple. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and He will direct your paths. Lean not on your own understanding. We are created for the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. God has ordained what is right. God has set our path before us. All things work together for good for those who love God and have been called according to His purposes. What we see as disappointment, as hurt, as pain, as bad, as harmful, God will use for good. We have no better example than Joseph. Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, whose brothers out of jealousy sold him into slavery, who continued to put one foot in front of the other following God, rose to prominence in the house of Potiphar only to be thrown in prison and suffer there, and eventually rose years later to the number two in command of all of Egypt. And as a famine hits the land and destroys so many lives and ruins nations, and his brothers come humbly in search of food because they heard of the grain in Egypt, when when Joseph reveals himself to them, they're naturally filled with all the shame and doubt and regret that you can imagine. Their greatest sin and regret is standing in front of them right there. And what does Joseph say? God sent me ahead to save you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We can't always see the good that God has for us when we're barely able to get out of bed. So to my kids, I say, put one foot in front of the other and follow God. 
We all set such high expectations of perfection of ourselves. When you're a kid, it's playing a board game or winning basketball. Maybe it's if I get into college, if I get good grades, am I saving enough for retirement? Am I able to buy a house? What decision can I make? Will this thing that I want work out exactly how I want it to? How I deem best. From my limited understanding of what meets my current desires, and we plan and we scheme and we orchestrate and we try to direct our paths so hard, so perfectly. Brother and sister, we labor in vain. Hear this good news. We are not responsible for the outcome. Trust me, I've tried. I've tried to juggle every single nuance of every single detail of my life. And it seems like the more I try, the more I fail. Because I am not God. I am not the one who from the foundations of the earth prepared for you before you were born the path that you should walk. I'm not the one who created anything. So many times we don't know why things are happening. So much we don't understand. We may never understand. Kind of like that age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? We can look at things that are clearly wrong and painful, things that we wish had gone down differently, but we can trust that God has orchestrated this for our good, for his glory. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has prepared for us, that we should walk in them. It's a beautiful truth. So by way of application, let's recap. By our nature... We are dead in sin. Don't think for a second that you're good enough to slip into heaven without the grace of God. Because of our natural passions for the desires of the body and the mind, again, sometimes those obvious blatant sins, and then almost more often than not, sometimes those hidden sins of the heart, looking good. But God, and this is the key phrase in this passage, but God, not you, Not if only, but God is rich in mercy, loves us with great love. He loves us so much that when we are dead in our sins, when we are as dead as those Pharisees who are confronted with the Son of God and despised Him and sought how they could destroy Him, His grace is sufficient. Strong enough to save us from our sin. Strong enough to save us from ourselves. Sufficient to breathe life into our dead bodies. And not just to give us this new life, as I've heard in the past, not just to give us this fire insurance, but to give us this hope of eternal life with him in heaven, basking in the grace and kindness for eternity. And he does this for us by his grace so that no one can boast. So none of us can look around and think we're better than someone else. We are more saved or less of a sinner than someone else. We are all equal heirs with God in the sight of God, like our brother Paul preached a couple of weeks ago. Talked about the parable of the laborers and those who were at the first hour bore the heat of the day and those who were called to the last hour. They are all equally saved in the sight of the Lord. So whether you started at an early age and have been in church your whole life or you're 80 years old hearing this for the first time, You are not good enough, but God's grace is sufficient for you. You are called, you are created by God long before you were born to worship Him, to walk in His righteousness. 
This is the ultimate good work of grace and love of Jesus Christ in your life to make you alive in Christ by his grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth and encouragement of your word. Thank you that your testimony is true and faithful throughout all time, throughout the ages. You have protected and preserved your people, Lord God. You have created us, you have called us, even to salvation by your great mercy. And that salvation and that grace is for our good, for your glory, that we may live in your righteousness and we may walk those good works that you have set for us. In your precious name I pray, amen.